welcome back to the Alvernal Voice. Today we are welcoming Gita Brown from the class of 2006 and current spiritual activist, writer, and yoga and music educator. So thank you for joining me today, Gita. Thank you, Alexis. It's lovely to be here. It's great talking to you again. Um, I figured we kind of jump into how you got involved with music since it's been a part of your life for so long. And, and during our last talk, you stated how music itself has always been about connection for you. And I was wondering, like, how did you come to this conclusion? Hmm, a lot of soul searching, Alexis. <laughs> a lot of soul searching. One of the benefits, I think, of being almost 50 is that um, one is able to look back at your life and sort of see things, um, how they started and that um, impulses that you had, how it makes sense, like in a bigger picture. So I think, you know, fundamental to human life is this des very real desire to connect with other people just from a sense of safety and community. But then also we have that emotional side of us that wants to connect. Um, I think it's just a fundamental human need, right? To connect to other people, to connect to our natural world. And it expresses different ways depending on our personality. So my personality definitely likes uh, creative. I would consider myself to be a little more of that uh, sensitive person. You know, I sort of feel the feelings of other people and all that energy has to channel somewhere. So for me, that initial desire to connect with other people, to connect with nature, and then to connect with myself, when you put that with a very creative person, a, a personality that's creative and a mind that is very sensitive, a nervous system that's sensitive and aware, the arts were like a very beautiful channel for me because I could make music, I could sort of make sense out of everything I was feeling inside. So that desire for connection, that feeling everything around me with such sensitivity, you know, as a young third and fourth grader making my way in the world, um, music was a really safe place to explore that. That was also, quite honestly, culturally validated. You know, if you can make music, you get a response from other people. They say, hey, that feels good. And then it creates this nice feedback loop where I could take what was that sort of natural human leaning, my personality of being a more creative type, and channel it into something that made sense to other people rather than going around emoting all the time. <laughs> so uh, it's a very real connection. I know a lot of artists that I've talked to share a very similar feeling as well. We come to the arts with that desire to express and to connect. Mm -hmm. And then we also talked about how like you weren't completely fulfilled with your music degrees because I believe you were clarinet performer, right? Yes, yes. I was all performance all the way. So how did you come to find music therapy eventually? Well, it's kind of interesting. It was one of those things that when I found it, it was like, where has this been? How have I not heard about this? But I wasn't ready to probably notice it when I was younger. So performance was my drive. I loved being in front of an audience, um, but it was a very transitory connection. It felt like to me, like I play the Beethoven, everyone applauds. We have this sort of transcendent experience or not transcendent, depending on the performance, but then it's over, right? And everyone goes home and it was like, whoosh. And I always felt like, oh, but I want that sort of continued relationship building with people. And I have that as a private lesson instructor, but I still felt like there was a way, I think I was searching for a way to generalize that feeling I had of being connected to my human side, connected to other people, 
and connected to that larger feeling of beingness in the world, I wanted that sort of all the time in my life, right? Not just on the concert stage or when I was practicing my clarinet. So music therapy then came um, along and gave me a way then in a more biomedical and a biopsychosocial framework to look at those desires for connection and have a way to build longer term relationships with people and to see how music could generalize into one's all day behavior. And I found it, I will say I, I, I found music therapy, it found me, it, it was always there, especially since World War II was really when it got sort of um, validated as a, a valid therapy here in the US. But it found me uh, through a community college random lecture that I attended. It was like I, I was uh, living in Michigan at the time, flipped through the community college catalog as you used to do when we got paper catalogs in the mail <laughs> as I date myself. But I was always looking for just classes or seminars I could take in an afternoon just to kind of keep my little intellect percolating. And I was like, music therapy, what's that? And it was run by a wonderful nurse who was very clear that she was not a music therapist but that she had enough training to give us an idea of what it is and how it was applied and gave us resources then if we were actually interested in meeting a real live music therapist. And so I went to this like seminar, I think it was a two or three hour long seminar at a community college where I was living at the time in Michigan. And I was like, oh, this is great. And then that sent me obviously eventually to Alverno. Yay. So was the speaker from Alverno? No, the speaker was a registered nurse from, I can't remember the hospital, but a hospital in Michigan of all places. But she believed in music therapy and wanted more people to know about it. So it was like her little intro to music therapy. And then if you want to know more, then she provided me with all the materials of where and how to find programs and on and on and on. And of course, as a musician who was looking for a connection, looking for a way to generalize music into her everyday life, I was like, oh, therapy might be the thing. And then years later, a couple years, took a few years, I ended up at Alverno. So how did you come to find Alverno? Did you have like a personal connection to someone that went here or did you just find it in like a catalog? Yeah, I found it. This was in the early days of the internet. <laughs> so there was such a thing then, thank goodness. But as someone who already had a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in music performance, I knew that I didn't need an, a whole nother degree. I was looking for a program in music therapy that they call an equivalency program. So it gives you the equivalent of a bachelor's in music therapy, which enables you then to take the board certification so that you can work as a board certified music therapist. So I was, I was very, I was a niche within a niche, Alexis, right? I was looking for a music therapy program that had an equivalency degree because not all of them do. And here's the kicker, I was from Northern Illinois originally. So Milwaukee and the idea of moving back to be near family was very appealing after I had spent mm, 15 or so years since I was 16 traveling around the country as a classical musician. So it was really appealing to like move back to the wonderful Midwest. <laughs> so I moved to Northern Illinois and then commuted up to Milwaukee back and forth for music therapy. Yeah, I know we talked about in the pre-meet how you commuted and you also worked like full time. And how was that experience like, especially since you didn't live just around the corner? Oh, my goodness. You know, I look back and I'm like, what was I thinking? You know, the late 20s are a wonderful time to burn energy. <laughs> that I would never burn now as a 50 year old. 
Um, I'd like to think I'm a little wiser in that. But for me at the time, um, I would say I can be a little bit more of a driven person and a very organized person. So I was teaching and this I'm saying this especially anyone who's listening out there who already has a career or maybe you have kids which is a full-time career <laughs> I hesitate to call it a career but you're a busy woman right you have a lot on your plate and maybe you're a little bit older a non-traditional student like I was I found Alverno to be really flexible in my um, degree program where I could take as much or as little each semester and the community was so supportive of that, which was very different than going through conservatory experience of my undergrad, which was really like you're either in it or you're not. There's no half measures in the other degrees I had. So I found Alverno to be extremely welcoming for that non-traditional student. And I said, I work full time. I was teaching at the College of Lake County in Grays Lake, Illinois, um, uh, teaching music, music education, uh, intro to music theory, clarinet lessons. Um, I was married, had a home, had multiple animals crawling all over the place. <laughs> uh, my uh, ex-husband's parents, my parents, like I had a very rich life. I thought, how am I going to do this? But I will say the Alverno community was so welcoming, so understanding, and really let me take it at my own pace. So I took, Alexis, like six years to do this degree, I think, maybe. And um, some people do it in two but I just did it in little bits and pieces over time. Mm -hmm. So if anyone out there I, was like, oh, I can't do it, like just one class at a time, right? Chip mm -hmm. away at it. And then yeah. I eventually finished. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest perks of coming to Alverno and being able to take it at your own pace because a lot of students are non-traditional and they have their own families and their own lives, but they're still trying to better themselves. So it's yeah. nice that we have that option to take it at our own pace. It is beautiful. It was a godsend for me. How have you been able to utilize your equivalency degree since graduating? Yeah. Yes, the equivalency degree. So that was key for me because for music therapy, well, not only did I need the skills, right? As a music therapist, I needed the clinical opportunities, the connections. I needed people to teach me how to do this um, therapy, which was a whole new ball game for me as a performer, being remote up on stage to actually, you know, sitting next to a human being and um, assisting them with their goals. So I needed all of that, but in order to practice as a music therapist, I had to take the boards, um, which is a big, huge exam that you sit for. And I also had to do an internship. So with the education I got at Alverno, it enabled me then to take the boards and then become a fully fledged music therapist board certified. And I started working mostly private practice in Northern Illinois. I did a little bit of work through Wisconsin Conservatory of Music in Milwaukee saw some private clients through them until finally sanity reigned and I realized perhaps I could give up the commute <laughs> and shifted to doing all my work in, in Illinois. And at that time I was working much to my surprise, primarily with children who had special needs or children who were considered quote unquote medically fragile, which just means they had a lot of very complicated medical things going on where they needed to be in a distinctly separate classroom within a public school for their immune systems and which we're all very well aware of now, <laughs> how important that is to keep people who are um, immunocompromised um, in a supportive environment. So much to my surprise, I was working with a lot of those kids who have a very non-traditional needs and was working with them mostly within a school setting and then some private as well.
And because of your vast experience, what do you think has been the most fulfilling part of your career journey so far? Whoa, what has been the most fulfilling? It's the people. It's always the people. I can think back to my time at Alverno and think back to specific people that I'm still in touch with now that I feel like um, there's a real sense of understanding and compassion and presence that comes with building relationships over time. And I think that's one thing that being a classical musician has afforded me because it takes a long time to become a classical musician. So I've met people and have stayed with those people. Same with Alverno, I've met people there and have been able to stay in touch with them there. So it's always the people, it's my peers, my students, when I was working as a music therapist, my clients, the people, the people, the people. I think that's great, especially because it's hard, especially like at this point to really connect with others since COVID started. Like, I feel like time's been flying by and I haven't been meeting as many people as I want because of the restrictions. So it's nice that you're taking such value in getting to know everyone and helping who you can. Yes, it's been a real, it's been an eye opener this whole pandemic, right? How much we need other people and not just that we need to be in a classroom with them or have transient experiences with people, which is great, but we also need people with that we are actively curating our relationships and it takes work when you're an adult (laughs) you know when you're in fifth grade y'all go to the same school together you see each other every day Mm -hmm. but once you leave that sort of nest of school you have to really work at these relationships and i have learned to literally put on my weekly goals along with things like take your vitamins woman and you know (laughs) you know finish writing that chapter you're working on i'll list out the friends that i need to reach out to and to connect Mm -hmm. with so that i have like a regular rotation and i don't let it just go like oh i'm too busy i'm too busy i'm too busy Mm -hmm. it's like literally part of my to-do list is to take time to be with my friends Mm-hmm. I love you, friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a big part of my life too. Because recently, my friend group's been getting closer, and like with social media, like on Snapchat, like we make sure to at least send a snap a day, just to make sure like we're still alive and we're still there, and we try to make plans for the weekend. And I'm like, I love that. Like I didn't have that before when I was growing up, and I think because of the pandemic, we're all just trying to stay connected and not lose touch with each other. So I think that's very cool that you also have that kind of goal set out. <laughs> yes, I do. I'm very goal oriented. <laughs> my friends make my to-do list. <laughs> um, so before you kind of mentioned yoga for the special child, can you talk kind of talk about like how that came to be and how you ended up getting involved with it? Sure, I'd be happy to. I think I mentioned that with, um, it, it was very surprising to me coming from a very, um, I won't say rigid, but let's say prescribed career as a classical musician to then sort of discover through my music therapy training at Alverno that I had sort of an affinity or I don't know what to call it, but sort of just a comfort in working with individuals who are considered to have special needs. We all have special needs though, don't we? I mean, come on. (laughs) We all need our special pillow to fall asleep and our food just so. But I, I sort of found working with these kids that, oh, there's there's a little affinity there. So I sort of feel like I get you. And then I worked with some adults. I was like, wow, I never would have guessed that. I really thought I was going to end up working in elder care and did do some of that and, and working with folks who have dementia and loved it. 
But I just kept, you know, as you do, you keep gravitating towards the thing you really are supposed to be doing as much as you try to do the other things you think you should be doing. <laughs> So I came across Yoga for the Special Child through my music therapy internship. I was looking still for that way to take that feeling of connection to self, to others, and to the universe and find a way to generalize that in my life, like all the time. I kept feeling like it was like in these chunks, in these prescribed moments. And I was like, no, it's, life should all be like that. I know there's a way. So I was searching, as you do when you're in your 20s and 30s, for that and had been doing yoga throughout my whole classical career since I was in high school. And so in my music therapy internship, I happened upon a little ad in the back of Yoga Journal. And it was the founder of Yoga for the Special Child, Sonia Sumar. She was sitting on the floor with her beautiful curly hair flowing behind her. Her knees were bent with her feet flat on the floor and on her like shins was a little infant and she was sort of cradling the infant um, against her legs and like looking down at its face. So the infant is like in basically an inversion. <laughs> if you're a yogi, a shoulder stand, but on her legs, they're sort of hanging upside down, but very safely, obviously. And Sonia was looking over at this infant and you could see in this little tiny photo that the infant was looking at her. And it was like time stopped when I saw that photo. It was like, that's it. Like, that's what I'm looking for. I didn't know what it was. I just knew the photo was capturing some thing that I had been looking for. You get a little misty just thinking about it. And I've since talked to other yoga for the special child practitioners of the same vintage as I. And they're like, I saw that ad too. It had the same effect on me. There was something about that photo that captured that connection and sweetness and presence that I had always sort of been missing perhaps in my life or yearning for more of. So I went to my lovely internship director for music therapy said, hey, there's a yoga for the special child teacher training. It's a week long. We learn how to adapt yoga to kids with special needs. Could I like do this for my internship hours? She's like, absolutely. It's totally, you know, on target. You'll be learning about children with special needs, how to adapt practices for them, improving um, their lives. And bonus, it uses a lot of music, the method. So I went to the training and I was hooked. I mean, that, that was it. That's been my life's path ever since. That was 2006. And that has been the style of yoga I do. And the whole, the whole ball of wax really all came together with me in that training. So the method was formed by Sonia Sumar in Brazil, and she started it in 1972 with her own daughter, Roberta, who was born with Down syndrome. And at that time in Brazil, there is no occupational therapy, physical therapy, speech language pathology, <laughs> adaptive horseback riding, adaptive sports. I mean, all of this stuff that kids have now, there was none of that. Children with special needs were basically left to sit alone in rooms, and many of them didn't learn how to walk, talk, or interact with their environment. And Sonia <clears throat> looked at her daughter and she said, oh, no way. Oh, no way. This is a beautiful soul who deserves to have a rich life. So she was a longtime yoga practitioner, and Sonia said, okay, I'm going to teach this baby yoga. But how? How do you teach an infant with special needs who's been through a traumatic birth yoga? 
So she started to break down the, the, the building blocks of yoga and made it accessible for her daughter. It helped her daughter so much, then other children started coming to her. And now we fast forward 50 years later, and it is an international practice, a licensed practice now that is practiced all over the world. And mm -hmm. it's been enhancing the life of children and their families with special needs that whole time. So I don't know how it found me, but it did. That ad did a job. Anyone out there in marketing, <laughs> pay attention. <laughs> I think that's like amazing and beautiful. And my mom even is a special education teacher. So I think it's really cool when you find people that are actually willing to help those that are disabled in some type of way because they do need help and you shouldn't just toss them aside. So it's beautiful that you and your other teachers are actually trying to help these kids like because they can learn. I've seen seeing, I love when I see um, how different ads and companies are taking on people like with Down syndrome and different disabilities and making it show like they can do what you can. Like I know, I think Victoria's Secret actually took on their first model that has Down syndrome. I'm like, that's amazing. Like she is beautiful and it's not like yes. she can do anything. Like, I think that's awesome. Yes. So. Yes, it's very much, it's very different. It's even changed since I was a kid when we didn't see the children who had special needs in the school, right? They were, so, and now everything is much, becoming much more accessible and open. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. we, have, we have more work to do for sure, um, but we're all just souls wandering around in whatever body we were given trying to make it work. So there's no mm -hmm. difference to me when I'm teaching those children or teaching a high performing musician, how to use yoga to help them with performance anxiety, it's all the same thing. Connect mm -hmm. with your body, calm your mind, help your body be more relaxed. And then usually you can be more of whoever you are. And that's a beautiful thing, regardless of what your label is. Mm -hmm. For sure. And I love how you stated that, like we all have special needs, like whether it's needing like a sleeping pill or having like ADHD or something like that. Yeah. And I was just thinking like, how does this way of thinking influence the way you teach your students? Mm, that's a great question. You know, my father um, was a professor for over 50 years. So we always knew as kids, like if you're gonna ask him a question, are you ready for the lecture? <laughs> That's going to come with the question. <laughs> like, think before you ask the question, because he's not just going to give you the answer. He'll mm -hmm. give you like four answers and then ask you to think for yourself and, and see if you can consolidate that information. <laughs> so obviously I'm saying that to, you know, the apple does not fall far from the tree. So um, I think he's been my greatest teacher, my, my professor dad, in that um, really my, I consider my job as a teacher is to help my student be whoever they are. And that's it. Because people say, how can you teach so many different things? You know, you'll teach yoga to a, a child who has um, autism and then you'll teach clarinet to like an aspiring professional. And then 20 minutes later, you're teaching a high school clarinetist like their marching band music, like you're all over the place. What are you doing? And I'm like, ah, it, on the surface, it may appear that I'm teaching different things and that those are all different people and whatever, but it's not, right? We're using breath, we're using sound, we're using our presence in the moment to help each student be who they are. So my job as a teacher is actually to get out of the way, <laughs> to get way out of the way and to create an experience for them so that they can figure it out for themselves, which takes a lot of what doesn't look like teaching 
that makes sense. Like a lot of people think teaching is getting up in front of a person and delivering a bunch of information. Anybody can do that. It's very easy just to lecture on and on about information, which certainly you need to give students. <laughs> they need the information, but even more, they need an experience so they can feel it for themselves. And sometimes that experience means that they go on with the subject you're teaching and they have great success. And sometimes the experience is that they fail at it and you have to allow them to fail and help them to find the thing that the failure is leading towards. So it's not always about how successful your student is on the surface. It's are your actions as a teacher helping them to be who they are? Mm -hmm. And that takes time to learn. I'm, I have so much more to learn of how to do that, you know? <laughs> Every time I teach, I'm like, oh, I messed that one up today, you know, constantly learning. But I, I don't know if I answered your question at all. No, you did. And I agree with you because I'm always telling like my friends and peers, like you live and you learn. Like we're all human. We all can make mistakes or we can thrive. Like we learn from experiences. So you just got to go with the flow of things. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So what would you say is like your favorite part about being a teacher in general? Oh, my favorite part about being a teacher is... <laughs> <laughs> is that I can be the nerd that I am and just be fully fledged with that um, and know that, um, and I, I mean that in all honesty, right? Like, is I, I, if I could define nerd for our audience. Uh, so you have a passion about whatever you're teaching, whether I'm talking about writing or music or yoga, just I love the subject so much I would think about them all day long, whether anyone would listen to me talk about them or not. So I'm passionate about the subject and then to be teaching other people who are curious about it is there's that connection piece again. And that all of that though, that nerddom, that like enthusiasm for just being who you are, un, you know, being unafraid to sort of like make mistakes and be messy. And using all of that though, in service of helping other people to be who they are, it's awesome. Like it's so fun. So I always tell people when they're like, hey, what do you do? I'm like, oh God, which answer? You know, do I talk about my writing as a spiritual activist? Or do I talk about, you know, teaching a child with Down syndrome? You know, as I have some kids who are training to be yoga teachers, or do I talk about teaching clarinet? Like, which hat do I pick? Or do I talk about taking care of my chickens? Like, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I feel like it all boils down to I'm either serving by saying, hey, make some sound, make some music. Or, hey, take a deep breath, let your body have more ease. And it's a really nice way to spend my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I remember from our initial discussion too, you talked about like how you're very in tune again with being like spiritual and having like that higher power work. How are you connecting your creative intuition to something higher? So um, as a longtime yoga practitioner, I um, really hold to the classical definition of yoga, which is yug, which is to unite or yoke. Um, and that can be, you, it's sort of like a, having a dual awareness in my life so that uh, I'm getting to the technique, <laughs> but big picture first is that this dual awareness is that I am both a human being I am Gita Brown, I'm a writer, spiritual activist, musician, yoga teacher, all the labels of what I do in the world. I am that. I'm a wife, I'm a daughter. But then there's that other part of me, the other part of the dual consciousness, which is like, but I'm a soul. 
and I am part of the universe, which inherently actually makes me the universe because I'm made out of the universe, the atoms in my body, the electrons, the protons, neutrons, the water in my glass, the air that I'm breathing is the universe itself, which also makes me the universe, that divine force. So it's like having this dual awareness of this very human transitory experience, but also this recognition that there is a divine force and I am that as well. So that can be like a lot to take in when you're trying to like shovel the driveway. <laughs> so the practices of yoga and particularly yoga for the special child and the tradition that it's affiliated with integral yoga have really given me a holistic system to practice that every day. So every day there's meditation where I'm calming my mind, calming the breath, and there is, which is enormously helpful for having that discerning intellect of like, hey, am I connected to my soul right now? Or am I stuck in my humanness and my desire and my attachment, and my aversion, and which usually doesn't go well. <laughs> so it helps me to build that discerning intellect. And then the practice of Hatha yoga, which is the physical practice, which helps my body feel more easeful. And that in turn can help me concentrate better and feel more peace. So the physical practices of yoga, daily meditation, a lot of breath work, which helps with that feeling both a small part of the universe and the whole universe simultaneously, you can feel when you breathe. And um, also studying the classic scriptures of yoga, going back to texts 6,000 years old of human beings going, yeah, like, yeah, it's hard, man. Life is hard. Here's some ideas of how to make it easier. <laughs> it's really nice to read those as well. And to use that intellect in service of yoga and in service of others um, really helps me to sort of stay tethered to that sense. Even as life goes through all of its whew, constant changes, like we've all experienced the past few years, yoga has been a practice that helps me stay connected with what is more steady and more permanent. So would you say that your higher power is just the universe or are you more religious than that? Yeah, so I would consider myself uh, spiritual, but not necessarily religious. And integral yoga is itself is an interfaith tradition. So embracing people from any, any walks of life. I have people uh, who study with me who are Catholic, who um, practice um, Judaism. I have folks who are agnostic. I've taught people who are atheist, and they've all found this deeper connection to themselves. So the tradition I come from is this very like all embracing yoga tradition mm -hmm. and that dates back to the the swamis which are monks and nuns in our tradition which dates back to the sixth century in our tradition to be this very open encompassing whoever you are whatever is your tether to the divine perfect <laughs> do that so for me um i would say i'll tell you what my teachers have said um there's many different ways for me to explain god or divinity and I would say, you know, peace is my God, my sense of peace and my connection to that all pervading peace, which is the universe and beyond. It really go, it, there is no name for it. There's no name. It's just OM. <laughs> and then I know you talked about like integral yoga before and then how during like our pre-meet you were, I think you mentioned how you're becoming like a reverend for the integral yoga ministry, how is that experience going? And like, why did you decide to go on that path? Yeah. So, you know, music, yoga, 
have been intertwined with me since high school. They've grown together. My yoga was very much more undercover until I became a teacher in 2006. It was always something very private. And then I decided to start teaching. That was however many years ago. Um, so prior to finding integral yoga, I had done every style that you could imagine <laughs> and enjoyed them all. But once I found that yoga for the special child and integral yoga lineage, which is the same lineage, I was hooked. That was, I was like, that's, that's it. It's like meeting the, you know, my, my husband is like, oh, of course <laughs> you're the one I mean, you just know, you I just knew. So I've been on the integral yoga path then since 2006. And for me, um, I did take um, the step to become a seminarian in the integral yoga tradition, which is an interfaith tradition de um, designed where um, our ministers are considered more of like uh, coaches, if you will. You know, we're not sort of authority figures or conduits for that power has to flow through, but we're coaches and we mentor people um, to help them discover their own spiritual fullness. So the step for me to you know, formally entering the ministry actually happened many, many years ago, 2007, when I took vows of initiation onto the path of integral yoga. And I took those vows of initiation, um, basically saying, hey, this is my way of life. This is what I'm doing. I want to live in service of other people. I want to cultivate my body and mind to be very peaceful, very happy. And even in just doing that, I know that I can help serve the world. And hopefully beyond that with writing and teaching and music, I can also serve through those ways. So for me, my entrance into the seminary really started in 2007. And I, I made it formal this past summer by officially applying to the seminary and saying, yeah, it's been working. I feel good. Let's do more. <laughs> So I never would have expected that I would be, you know, a seminarian on my way to becoming, you know, a minister. And I look at it really as just, I can't think of a better way to spend whatever I have remaining in my life, I'll be 50 this summer, than cultivating my own peace, cultivating my own ability to serve other people, even if that's just being calm in traffic, you know, wouldn't that be nice? And I look at the people I know who trained me in integral yoga, and I see how they're handling their 70s, their 80s, and into their 90s. And I see how abundantly energetic and happy and serviceful and positive they are and how much good they do in the world. And I was like, yeah, hashtag role model. That's how I want to be when I'm 80, 90. So I'm just following in their footsteps. So how does one get involved with integral yoga in the way that you are? Like, are there other types of ministries, I guess, like around, I'm guessing around the country, or is it just like specific locations that really just like practice it hardcore? Oh, like how, um, well, so integral yoga itself is an international practice. You can easy, you do not have to enter into the depths that Miss Gita has entered in if you want to practice integral yoga. And many, many of my students, they just come, they take one adult class a week and that's, you know, more than enough. They take the physical practice and some breathing and meditation and that's it. Um, for those who want to go a bit deeper, if you find, well, wow, this is really is a life path, it does have many different branches that encompass the intellectual study, um, the study of how you serve other people, the physical practices. So it gets really beyond just taking a yoga class, quote unquote, where you're just doing sort of some exercise. It's really a whole lifestyle. 
So there are integral yoga centers all over the world. You guys all have Google, Google integral yoga. <laughs> and there is, um, there is an ashram in Virginia where I've done all of my training. The name is, get this Alexis, Yogaville. <laughs> the best. I kept calling it Yoga Land when I first heard about it. I'm like, I'm gonna go to Yoga Land. Oh no, it's Yogaville. And the original founder of, of Integral Yoga, Sri Swami Satchidananda said, we're gonna call it Yogaville because people will remember it. And he's right. <laughs> so there's an ashram in central Virginia where you can actually go take retreat there. They are open now um, for long weekends for small numbers of guests, you know, due to the pandemic, but they are open and running. And you can go there and eat delicious vegetarian food, be in the woods, in the hills and shrines and do yoga and meditate. And there's a temple there that people of all faiths go and worship at. So it's a lovely place to go take a retreat. And there's also an integral yoga institute in, in San Francisco, which is also an ashram, one in Manhattan, if you can believe it, that's also an ashram. I mean, they have the swamis and the monks living there as well as just uh, residents. And there's many, there's a center in India and then many different integral yoga institutes, smaller centers sprinkled all over the world. And they have integral yoga TV too, which I love. You can stream all <laughs> kinds of classes and lectures and IY TV. I'm like, integral yoga is on TV. So it's great, good stuff. And then you kind of mentioned the lifestyle. So besides like just trying to have that peace and just, you know, your breathing and everything, what does the lifestyle like entail? Mm. So lifestyle of a yogi, I would say, is one of having personal discipline where that personal discipline is you know, not rigid and like hard, but it's personal discipline where you make a real firm commitment to keeping your own peace um, and having that really as primary importance and it can be so easy to look around our world and be so distracted by so many things that need to be addressed. But often what happens then is we want run around trying to help everybody else, but our own body, our own mind, our own health, our own inner peace is not strong enough to serve for a long period of time without a break and keep that enthusiasm up of serving the world however we do, whether it's raising a family or you know advocating for peace um, in the Ukraine war. So whatever level of, of service we all wanna do in the world, we have to take care of ourselves first. So that lifestyle of a yogi is really actually holding oneself accountable. Like, okay, I better sort of clean up my own closet first every day, make sure my mind that I'm staying focused on what is positive and what is doable while acknowledging the challenges, not just bypassing them, but acknowledging um, the challenges, but approaching that with compassion and understanding. And um, the lifestyle is also one of that, that mental focus and discipline that I was talking about with meditation. So that you're spending some time every day communing with whatever aspect of the divine you like to connect with, even if it's just your own breath, not even if, if it's your own breath. So some time um, really taking care of your own body, your own mind, and then making sure that your actions are motivated with this selflessness is the final piece. So that you're doing actions simply because it's the right thing to do, not because you're expecting a reward, which is really 
so hard, right? Like we do something nice, we wave someone into traffic, and then we're like, oh, they didn't give me the thank you wave. I mean, like I've done that, right? Like, oh, I slow down and let them in and they didn't even acknowledge me. Like we do something, but we want something in return. Mm-hmm. In yoga, we're constantly trying to go like, hey, what's your motivation? Your motivation should be just to serve. You serve just because serving makes you feel good. And however the other person takes it, that's how they take it. But you just continue to give simply. And if it's accepted, great. And if it's not, fine, you move on. But that you have that selfless notion. In that way, that service then can be sustained over a long period of time, rather than just protesting one day and then going back to your life the next. But are you continually taking the actions in your own life and in everything you do to be compassionate? It's 24 (laughs) seven. It's not for the faint of heart. And I can see that being like shown like um, what I was going to bring up next was your Gita Brown LLC and how you're very multi-passionate. And I can see like that whole lifestyle is being intertwined with everything you produce on your like your site. So how did Overnal prepare you for taking that step in your career? And then also like how did Integral Yoga kind of, I guess, prepare you for making your own LLC as well? Yeah, so I think Alverno was really crucial in giving me time and space to do it at my own pace, um, which being a multi-passionate person, and now you can say I'm a multi-passionate entrepreneur, Ooh, fancy, <laughs> <laughs> whatever that means. But um, to be multi-passionate then means I have different irons in the fire, right? I might be teaching yoga for the special child, integral yoga, writing a magazine article and teaching a clarinet lesson all in the same day and maintaining my perennial garden. We have chickens here on the farm, you know, saying, Hey, to my husband, spending time with him. So like many people, there's a lot of different things in a day. And Alverno really gave me sort of the permission to take my time with each of those projects and understand that because I am multi-passionate, if someone is going to write a book in two years, it might take me 10 because I have all those other things going on and that that is totally okay because that's my path. Whereas if I try to just write the book in two years, I'd be miserable because I'd be like, but there's all this other, I miss my students and I want to do those other things. So Alverno gave me the permission to do it at my own pace and to find the power in that, that that once you find your own pace and your own stride, that's where the power is. It's not in matching the external curriculum or getting the degree done in a certain time. It's the plugging into what's important to you and then just setting about taking those small daily actions to make sure that your actions are in alignment with what's important. So Alverno is one of those quietly influential places for me. And I do think that um, the sacred spaces at Alverno kind of worked their little magic on me <laughs> without me knowing it. So at the time I would have been sort of like religious averse, you know, I'd be like, I don't understand that. I wasn't raised. What is that? Not in a bad way, but just like, I feel intimidated, but it was so very welcoming to be in some of those sacred spaces. And I could feel it, you know, when you walk into a sanctuary, you feel that like, oh, <sighs> like people have prayed here. You can feel a sense of sort of a relief there. And I think that worked on me too. So all the different things that I offer, it's not all that different. It's just connecting with people, making music, making sound, being present with one another. And I think it's so unique that you're able to be and remain multi-passionate because I feel like in a lot of circumstances, 
one person will have just one passion and kind of just stick to it and not really try to take on others. So how are you able to push or share all your passions the way you do in such a public setting? Maybe I'm a little crazy. <laughs> so I have had teachers. In fact, my the, te- the founder of Yoga for the Special Child, Sonia Sumar, she was like, she's Brazilian. I'm going to do a horrible Brazilian accent. I apologize to everyone, but she's like, Gita, why do you have to do so many different things? <laughs> because I do. And see, my own parents too sometimes are like, really? Another thing? Um, and eventually I realized though that that is my superpower. Um, if you will, not that I think I'm a super person, but that is just sort of how I am. That if I try to function in any different way to be solely a classical musician, then I'm not a very good classical musician because I feel like anxious and I am like, but, 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 but. So if anyone out there is listening, just be who you are. If you are that single passionate person, you're obsessed with writing a book or you're obsessed with needlepoint, whatever your thing is, do that. Because for me, from the time I was 12 until all the way through several years after grad school, my whole life was classical music performance. That was it. It was clarinet 24-7. And I think that single-minded determination and focus, project management, if you will, for that one specific skill, I was like, oh, well, if I did that for clarinet and I got in orchestras and I was performing and gigging and making a living, now I have the skill sets of being organized, of understanding how to manage multiple projects, you know, different pieces across time. All of those skills, I was like, I can apply those to other things. So being multi-passionate, you have to be organized. I, I would say it's twofold. If you're a multi-passionate person and you're listening to this, number one, make sure why are you multi-passionate? For me, I'm multi-passionate because it's all coming from the same place. I wanna connect to other people, connect to myself and connect to divinity. So if I'm picking a project and there's something I want to get interested in, it has to serve that mission, my life mission. Otherwise, I'm just doing lots of things and I'm like digging lots of holes all over the place, but never digging the well that gets to water. So the multi-passionate has to all be driving by the same force, not just running around like a crazy person doing lots of different things. Does that make kind of make sense? So there's like a, there's a mission that's driving all those multi-passionates, not just all this. To me, it doesn't feel diverse because it's all the same thing. And then the second part is that organization and discipline I learned as a classical musician. My students every now and then see my calendar, especially like the middle schoolers and the high schoolers, you know, I open it up on the iPhone just to be like, Oh, let's look at the date there. And they're like, Whoa, they're like, you are so organized. Cause I'm like, I have to be. But I'm so organized. I have lots of free time. I work way less than my peers do um, because I'm so organized. I'm used to just do it, get it done. And then you have all this free time. Whereas when I was younger, I was perhaps not so organized (laughs) and wasted a lot of time. (laughs) Yeah, I used to think I was really organized as a kid. But then like going through high school, like I never had free time. And now I I know I'm organized and I'm like, oh, I actually can go out and I don't have to just like do homework for hours on end. Like I can divide it up. So (laughs) yes, it is a beautiful thing. I was a reluctant as a multi-passionate, creative, empathic sort of person. I was very resistant to that. I thought it was going to be rigid. And then I realized, no, it's a conduit that your energy can flow through. And then you have abundant time to hang with your friends and make popcorn and whatever you like to do. Clearly, I like to eat popcorn. (laughs) So going off of that, because you do publicize like everything you do, 
Mm -hmm. um specifically like I know you published quite a few essays in like a variety of magazines so what encouraged you to share your personal stories because I know they get pretty deep depending on like what it is (laughs) yes yes thank you for bringing that up um so yes I do have um a platform that if you look at it from the outside and I've had people say this to me wow you share everything um but it's been very a conscious choice. And I think especially over the past four years, I've really sat down and been very conscious of having an internal boundary around what I share and what I don't share. So that um, on my YouTube channel, which is primarily just providing free cool yoga stuff, whether it's a lecture or some classes, I just like to share bits of yoga (laughs) for the interested person, just here and there, very light, Um, on my website, on my newsletter, and then even social media, especially, which I don't use for social purposes with my friends, but I use just as another way to share the teachings of yoga and perhaps something useful. I try to be very intentional about that internal boundary. So there is a lot that I actually don't share, even though it seems like in my writing and all those channels, I share everything. There's a lot of my personal life that I'm like, I will never write about that. I will never talk about that. Many a vacation has come and gone and no one has even known. Sometimes my friends don't even know what I'm doing. I really wait. Um, So that's just on the social media side. And, And one last thing about social media is before I post anything, I usually sit on it for a week, which I know is like, so not your generation or most, even my generation. They're like, what? So I kind of look at it like I love tattoos. I have a lot of tattoos. And before I get a tattoo, I usually wait about like a year because it's going to be on there for like as long as I'm in this body. So if I can wait a year and I still want the same thing, then it's probably worth inking into my flesh. (laughs) So... But with social media, it's usually like a week. So I'll have an impulse like, oh, I want to post that thing that my chickens did. It was so funny. And then I'll sit on it. And if I still want to post it a week later, then I know it's probably worth sharing. If mm-hmm. I don't care anymore, that means it was probably nonsense, which can be fun to share nonsense. But for me, I mean, I have a, like a really, that way I also know too that I'm checking it with my internal boundary. Like, is that going to open me up to sharing something that maybe isn't safe to share that people who aren't going to take that? So This is a very long answer, but I am a nonfiction writer. For those of you who aren't familiar with my stuff, I write nonfiction. So I write personal essay. I've written a lot about my ex-husband's addiction and his issues with alcoholism, which did end up taking his life. So I essentially lost him three times. Uh, As a friend, I lost and as a wife, I lost him to his alcoholism. Then I lost the marriage when we divorced and then lost him when he passed a number of years later. So the decision to write about that was kind of a no-brainer because it had to be said, had to be told that it is possible to um, love someone with, through, and to all the ups and downs of addiction and maintain your own sense of internal compassion and love. Because I feel like a lot of the narrative around addiction is very... Uh, vilifying or Mm -hmm. very almost like making it seem kind of cool and exciting you know like the dramatic addict story like let's hear about all those dark moments it's sort of like that 
People want to be titillated by that. Um, or just like, oh, he's a drunk. Good thing you divorced him. Now you can move on. I'm like, nope, nope, not the lesson, not the lesson. So I felt like I wanted to just add a different voice to that. Of Here's how, for me anyway, I feel as though I maintain and he maintained towards me a feeling of compassion, even though he was being overtly abusive to me. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. there was no doubt about it. So it's complicated, tricky stuff. And so I write about it because I think it's worth sharing. I should have just said that at the beginning. I write and I share things that I think are worth sharing. And I take time to think about them before I share. That would have been a lot shorter than what I just went on and on and on. No, what you said makes sense though. And like, would you say that all your writing is more therapeutic for you? Or are you just trying to share like a message overall? Oh boy. You know, I actually, I'm not one of those writers. Okay. I'll tell you what my, my brilliant teacher told me. I quote my teachers a lot. <laughs> so my brilliant teacher, Alex Marzano Lesnovich, who wrote the fact of a body, which is an award-winning book. Um, they just had a piece out in the New York times this past weekend on who has the right, um, to help individuals transition in their gender award-winning, you know, New York times author. So Alex, Alex said once, hmm, on this whole, like, was writing a memoir therapeutic? It must make you feel so good. And they were like, um, I didn't find the process of writing the memoir to be therapeutic, but having written one was therapeutic, if that makes sense. So like the process of writing nonfiction that is particularly self-revealing about the times when I really mess up and the times where I, as a yogi, I step off the path and am not kind and I'm not compassionate and really writing honestly about those and sharing that is really hard, you know, and does involve tears at the computer and, you know, talks with my writer friends. Um, so I do it a little bit more cause I enjoy the art. <laughs> I love the art of writing and I think it's really fun having written the pieces and then having published them in meditation magazine and the Boston globe and integral yoga magazine feels great. And that part of it and the conversations I have with people after about the pieces is therapeutic, but I know there's a large community of people out there. I don't want to disparage them who find the act of writing itself being therapeutic that my journaling and stuff, you know, like you write in a journal uh, that is therapeutic for me, or like just my brain dumps on the page is therapeutic but my writing writing is like craft. It's art. It's, it's making art out of life, which means a musician is a very different process than therapy. Mm-hmm. And I know how you mentioned that you try to be like a conscious thinker before you post or when you write something. Mm-hmm. So, and Alverno's really big on like self-reflection. Did that have any influence <laughs> on you as well? <laughs> very nice connection made. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, my goodness, I remember towards the end of like the five or six years it took me to knock out that equivalency degree. I was like, oh my God, another self-reflection, please, somebody make it stop. Because it just, you feel like you're saying the same things over and over again, but then you're like, but yeah, you're saying the same things over and over again because you're the same you. And if you keep having the same problems, maybe that's something to reflect on, woman. (laughs) So absolutely, I feel like, as being a classical musician, that's what you're constantly doing, you know, practicing the clarinet, then being a yogi, that's what you're constantly doing. You know, hey, where's your mind? Are you focusing on the mantra? Or are you thinking about what you're gonna have for lunch or the cup of coffee that's coming up? 
uh, you're constantly self-reflecting. However, at Alverno, it really externalized that process and made it concrete. Made it so concrete, Alexis, that now when I teach students, the very first thing I ask them when they're done, you know, playing a piece for me, I go like, what did you think? Like, it's immediately like, I, they're just like, oh, I see the same groan in them. They're like, really? But I've noticed they get better and quicker at doing it. And I, it absolutely, it's such a wonderful skill. And one of the things that attracted me to Alverno, because I knew that in order to be a skilled music therapist, facts would be essential. Techniques were vital. But what I actually needed was that ability to be in process with someone else and to be able to adjust and adapt in the moment. And that whole self-reflection, no quote unquote, no grading was very freeing for me having come from a very much more um, strict, I won't say rigid, oh, I'll say it, rigid classical music <laughs> um, upbringing, which was very mm -hmm. much, you know, do the job, get an A, there's the next thing. Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, I can relate to that. Um, when I was in middle school and high school, I went to IB schools. So it was very just, you have to get the highest grades, you have the highest GPA, so you can get into like the best college or university. And I'm, and I'm glad that what attracted me to Alberto too was how like there are no grading thing, even though like you do get a grade, it's pass or fail, but it's a different process. You can actually reflect on what you're doing and just kind of take it in and take your time with it and just actually learn instead of stressing like, oh, I have to get an A in order to be like the best college student ever. So. Yes, I love what you said there. It's process oriented, right? It's mm -hmm. all about the process. And what is life other than a process? We're not going to yeah. get an A at the end. You're not on your deathbed getting graded, yeah. right? You're going to be there dying. So can you be present with whatever process you're in? And that's part of yeah. what Alvarno teaches. Yeah, especially because like when you get into like the workforce, whatever workforce you're in, like they don't give out grades. It's it's all about communication and teamwork and talking it out and self-reflecting again instead of like, oh yeah, like you did this report, like here, you can get an A and I'm just like, that's not how it is in real life. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. So you talked more about like music therapy in this answer. And I know last time you talked about how like it was woven into how you teach like yoga and you perform your chants and write and like so forth. So what is your teaching style like? How would you like describe it? <laughs> yeah interview my clarinet students and my yoga students, maybe they can tell you. <laughs> I have no idea. What is my teaching style like? Hmm. I'm going to try and step outside of myself for a moment now and <laughs> self-reflect as Alverno has taught me to do. <laughs> um, my teaching style, I would say, hmm, I would say, gentle but firm how's that gentle but firm sounds so, good <laughs> yeah you know just um be who you are be present where are you how are you doing today what's going on okay now put that into focusing on what you're doing you know <laughs> so um i think there's really nice to be i have found it useful when when my teachers are gentle but firm and gentle in that they allow me to be who I am and however I show up on that day, they just they accept that. But then they're firm in saying, okay, now let's engage. So that never kind of like lowering the bar, like, oh, you're having a bad day, let's lower the bar. But like, okay, how can we now continue to move forward? And yeah, gentle but firm. I don't know. That's a good question. I have to ask ask them that. I don't know. 
Did Alverno's teaching style impact yours in any way? Well, I think every teacher that I've ever had, I've learned something from them, you know, mm -hmm. from the teachers I quote unquote thought were wonderful to teachers I thought, hmm, I, I wouldn't do it that way. Um, so, yeah, I think that the biggest takeaway for me at Alverno in terms of looking at myself as an educator was that continual process oriented thing that we talked about, right? Where even every class period was process oriented. So where it's like, it's set up at the beginning, like here's the bucket we're gonna play in today, kids. So everyone sort of knows, and then you launch into the bucket and even along you're making little course corrections. And at the end, everyone as a class looks back at the bucket and goes like, hey, what'd we make in the bucket today? So it's like that continual process of setting an expectation, but then being willing to, as the process unfolds, make changes and at the end of it looking back and saying hey what worked there kind of created attraction for learning that i think it has sort of probably bled through to a lot of things i do even how i manage projects um you need to have the plan but understand as soon as you implement the plan it's going to indicate a course correction like every time so don't get so hung up on the plan that you never take action but then don't get so hung up on the plan that you are rigid with the plan Right, but that you have the plan and that you continue to engage with the process and let the plan evolve. And then you look back and reflect, hey, what worked, what didn't, and let's continue on. I think that sort of process-oriented just way of being at Alverno was sort of there in me, but it got really solidified at Alverno and seeing other teachers doing it and a whole school giving it the vote of approval as an educational modality was very freeing for me as a teacher. Again, having come from a very strict classical upbringing uh, was mm. very, very freeing to have that level of discipline and rigor, but combined with the process oriented was really transformative. And then kind of circling back to your experience with your classical upbringing and like being in the orchestra, um, in our pre-meet you had stated that it was very male dominated, which I never really noticed before. Mm. And I was kind of thinking about how you mentioned like the sexism that's in it. So how would you say overall, like being in an orchestra influenced your life overall? And then like the different experiences that you faced either good or bad. Hmm. I think that uh, being a classical musician. So for the listeners, this would have been in the eighties and the nineties and the early two thousands. Um, but particularly in the 80s and 90s, um, I mean, it still is happening to this day that if, if you're a woman and you're in a major symphony orchestra, uh, your salary will be less than a man who has the same job that you do. And a lot of orchestras are working their tails off. And I know here in Boston, the Boston area, Boston Symphony Orchestra is really working hard to bring that um, equity into those scenarios, but still not there. But particularly in the 80s and 90s, I mean, I heard, you know, overtly sexist comments. Um, I mean, I was told by certain people, I'll, <laughs> I won't say who they are, but I was told by certain people, you can't be first chair because you're a woman. I mean, it was like that clear. This is when I was a teenager. Um, I heard from other people, uh, you looked, <laughs> I wore a dress for a recital once when I was in conservatory, uh, an undergraduate, and it was a very... <laughs> like I would say Little House in the Prairie dress. I mean, I was covered from head to toe. Like it was not at all risque. That's not my jam. 
and but I had a fellow come up to me who was had been in a classical orchestra, which will I will remain not naming that one, but he said to me, Oh, you know, great job on the recital, but you looked way too feminine. <laughs> I was just like, what? And my friends like came to my aid afterwards, like, I can't believe he said that. Now. You know, we were all like our heads blew off. But this was, I mean, just this was constant, constant happened to me in high school too. Like, I won't vote for you because you're a female. Females can't be first chair. I heard that from multiple people. You know, women can't be leaders in the orchestra. Um, and luckily I had faculty members, both at Interlock and Arts Academy, Eastman School of Music and University of Michigan, who all pushed back against that. So I want to make that clear that while the sexism was overt, when those instances happened, people who were within earshot or who heard about it came up and said, hey, that's not right. We're not going to stand for that and did what they could to correct the situation. But it was a real eye opener for a Midwestern empath like me <laughs> and helped me to realize that like, hey, who I am as a person and my worth can't be dictated by another person. You know, I know that I'm worthy and I belong here and I've put in the work, so I belong here. Um, so it gave me a thick skin in that way. And I think it also was encouraging for me to see this was right in the shift of the 80s into the 90s when women started asserting their femininity and their expression of what we would consider femininity um, as a place of power. And I was sort of lived through that shift. So initially women were performing if they performed like a concert in front of a major orchestra as a violinist, they would wear something that pretty much covered them up. And I remember Anne-Sophie Mutter, who's a famous German violinist, came out with his album and woo, the woman was wearing like plunging neckline and bare shoulders and bare back and everyone's jaw dropped because you did not do that in classical music and you certainly didn't have an album cover where you were like, you could see her shoulders, you know, that was like, what? And she like blew the door open, like, yes, you can express yourself in that way and be a serious classical musician. You don't have to dress like a button, a man in a tuxedo in order to be a musician. So I saw that shift happening and women claiming this sort of typical, what we would consider a typical expression of femininity as a position of power, not as something to be covered up. And that started to sort of break it open for me as well of like my physical expression can be reflective of who I am, not of a quote unquote norm as long as it doesn't offend or hurt another person, be who you are. So it was sort of like the tip of the iceberg. And now I see my millennial students performing in like Converse and all this stuff, which we would have just thought was like the worst thing ever, you know, <laughs> like be more formal. And they roll out just looking like they rolled out of bed and they blow it out of the park and they play amazing. So it's really been a nice cultural shift. Mm -hmm. And like we said, unfortunately, like sexism is very popular just around the world in general. So like, what advice would you give to women who are like pursuing a similar route as you and are feeling discouraged by their male counterparts? Hmm. Well, I would say your greatest ally um, is actually to build bridges. Um, I, I know there is a lot of talk of dismantling the patriarchy and dismantling systems and all that. And while I think there is great merit in dismantling uneven power structures, and addressing these sort of institutional biases and really exposing them as we've been doing, I am perhaps a bit more uh, 
of a diplomat <laughs> that I'd like to actually build more bridges. So I don't want to dismantle a bunch of stuff and have it laying in pieces. Um, it's very easy to break things down. It's much harder to build understanding. So if someone was feeling discouraged or has been just had things said to them that were not appropriate or has even felt it, because sometimes you feel it, women and men out there, people of what, however you identify, we all know when someone is being inappropriate to us, sometimes we feel it before they even say anything. So the first thing would be is to find a trusted ally someone who is in your inner circle who has proved themselves over a long period of time to be safe and just go talk to them about it say hey this thing happened so you can process that initial shock of like what the what and you can let that emotional reaction sort of be heard and expressed but then let it let that wave recede so that you can find the best action going forward and then within that you have to i think it can be useful to decide if that person who is being inappropriate is going to be someone that you can build a bridge to. Sometimes they are. It's someone that you could talk to, even if you are agreeing to disagree. Um, sometimes that's not a safe person though, to go and address directly. You'll just be opening yourself up to further abuse. So in that case, then finding a trusted ally who's within whatever organization or group, whether it's a knitting club or a professional orchestra or whoever, find a safe person who is in that sort of hierarchical position of power that you can express. The most important thing you can do is to talk about your experience with people that you feel safe talking about it to. And not everyone is going to feel safe being a whistleblower. And that is totally okay. If it's just that you're processing with you and your therapist, that might be enough for you. If you are comfortable bringing it to other people's attention, then absolutely, absolutely do so and try to build that bridge of understanding and creating culture around a more harmonious way to live rather than just attacking that person. Cause now they attacked you and you attack them. And what do you have? A mess. And then Alberto is really built on like female empowerment. So how has that influenced the way you perform and present yourself? Hmm. Female empowerment. There is a whole portion of yoga that really talks about the divine feminine and femininity as being sort of that womb of creation, right? In the darkness of the woman's womb, um, this is where life comes from. Um, and I, I've come to understand in my own life to embody that power um, that anyone can have, whether you identify as a man or a woman, it's just sort of how you're wired in your body. So that expression of uh, feminine empowerment, I think for me, one of the greatest joys is when I work with a young lady who um, I've met a lot of girls who are like eight, nine or 10 when they start either doing yoga or playing clarinet. And then I see them through the change when they start to go through puberty and into high school. And I feel so blessed and grateful for all my sisters and my brothers at Alverno because and now being a woman who's going through the other end of the change right heading towards full menopause and feeling what that feels like so to work with a young lady in the beginning of that transition for them and to help them normalize and understand and feel empowered in what they're feeling in their body is a very different message than what i received which was like hide it be ashamed you're a girl kind of woo, woo 
to talk about your period. Keep it quiet, you know? And I'm like, no, 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 we're going to talk about that. And we're going to talk about what cramps mean and what these emotions mean. And that's actually a source of your power. It's not something that needs to be medicated away. It's something that you can learn to manage and harness. It's a transformative experience. Mm-hmm. So working with young ladies is like so, I'm like, oh, I wish I had had this. Like using that change of life as transformation has been awesome. I'm mm-hmm. so happy that young ladies have what they have now in this country. I want to acknowledge it's not like that all over the world. Yeah, I think that's great, especially because when I was a kid and, you know, our bodies are changing, but it's like you can't acknowledge that because it's weird and you like can't dress a certain way because you'll be ashamed of it and boys will look at you and your boys aren't supposed to look at you. So it's great that you're actually being able to help young women like just accept their bodies and the transitions they're going through because every woman goes through it. It's not like it's a foreign thing. We have to pretend that we don't just to make others feel comfortable. Yes, that's a very good point, just to make others feel comfortable. Mm-hmm. And knowing too that it's um it's natural, you know? Yeah. The boys are going through their thing too. Yeah. <laughs> and gender neutral mm-hmm. folks, they're going through their thing too. So just be, it comes back to what you're saying. Like, what do you do if, if, if someone behaves in an abusive way towards you about, about your sexuality or your femininity, talk about it with your safe people, you know, and then as you feel comfortable, if you want to write a nonfiction essay about it, do it. (laughs) However you're doing it, honor who you are, honor where you're at and find people who like to do the same. And then something that struck out to me during our initial meet was how you said that you were able to travel the world, I believe with your mother. So (laughs) Like, Talk about I, female empowerment, right? Yeah, I have a few follow-up questions with this, but like to start, like, what was your mother's profession and how were you able to do that with her? Because that's not normally like a thing a child can do with their parent, at least in my yeah. experience, what I've heard. <laughs> yes. yes, I've come to realize this, that not every young lady gets to travel the world with their mother. I was very fortunate and talk about my mother is like the ultimate female empowerment figure. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother is... Um, She went to Northwestern University um, and is, wow, um, just the absolute grand dame of um, biochemistry. Um, So organic chemistry was her whole background. She went to Carleton College and then Northwestern University for a PhD and then went on to work for a large pharmaceutical company doing... um, Oh, I should have brought her should have brought her book up here with me. Um, but I think the title is qualitative or is it quantitative? Quantitative, wouldn't be qualitative, quantitative drug design. So she was doing imaging of cells and drugs uh, back when computers were like as big as this room I'm sitting in, you know, <laughs> like, so um, she was doing really important work, though, on the pharmaceutical industry, working with whole teams of people trying to figure out, you know, they would have a drug. It seemed like it was having good clinical application. It was headed that direction, but they weren't always able to get the drug into the cell, right? There's so many steps to making some of these um, interventions. And so my mom would do so much of the science behind these tiny, tiny, tiny pieces of our being that need to accept the drug in. And she would do all the imaging of that. So all this problem solving in this male dominated field, right? She was one woman in this entirely male dominated field. And when she retired, uh, you know, they, they um, did whole journals uh, dedicated to her. She's just, she hates it when I call her a genius, but she really is. 
So I, I visited her once um, at the pharmaceutical company that she was working at, and they have a whole wall of pictures of people who are in this upper level society. Um, it's called the Vowiler Society. So it's like the upper ups of the upper ups of the scientists who work on this drug design. And I look at the whole wall. So there's like a hundred dudes up there and there's one, one woman, it's my mom. <laughs> you know, it's like a hundred dudes and my mom. So being a scientist, you know, when she was coming up in the fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties, there was no maternity leave. You know, she was wearing suits that look like men's suits, but it were a skirt instead, you know, very mm. much like that. So, but because she was a brilliant scientist, she was always invited to be speakers at conferences all over the world. And she would, when it was appropriate, take me with her because she could. So I got to go to San Francisco with her. We grew up in, in Chicagoland. And then uh, when I was in high school or maybe in between junior high and high school, like eighth grade, she took me to Europe with her. And I remember we went to Interlaken, Switzerland, and she said, okay, I have the conference all day long. So, you know, here's some money, go buy some chocolate, <laughs> walk around, <laughs> practice your German. I had some, you know, some German at that point and, you know, I'll see you later. So I went off and I had chocolate for lunch. It was awesome. <laughs> and then later that day, I went to like the conference place to meet up with her. And all I saw was this huge swarm of men. And then in the middle of it was my mom. And it was like after her lecture and they were all swarming to get a chance to talk to her. And a gentleman came up to me and he said, young lady, do you know how famous your mother is? <laughs> and I'm like, she's my mom. <laughs> like, no, she's my mom. She takes me to Taco Bell on Saturdays, you know, and taught me how to make these pants. Like, she's my mom. That was my first entree into like my mom having this totally different life, you know, um, this whole career that I had no idea that there's people who walk around the world thinking like, oh, your mother is this famous scientist. And I had never really seen her in that way because she was so present and loving with me as a mother um mm. so it opened up my mind my eyes then to that female empowerment and what do you think the influence was on you seeing how famous your mom actually was and then being able to travel with her on your personal and like professional skill set and whatnot yeah well i mean come on she taught me that be who you are you know, be fully who you are. Cause she was a scientist. My grandmother told me that when my grandparents didn't go to college, my grandmother said, when your mom was like six, she came up to me and said, I want to go to college. I want to go to college. And she was like, I don't even know where she heard the word college. Like we didn't talk about it. So my mom taught me like, be who you are and like, really like follow your passion, get deeply into it. Keep following it. Like, don't like a I have a, a bull terrier dog and <laughs> a bull terrier is on that scent, you know, the chipmunk, it doesn't give up. It stays with it. So find your passion, go deeply within it. Um, and then the world can open up to you through that laser like focus. And I think though, the biggest thing is that she taught me though, was seeing the way she interacted with all the other people because she made time for everybody that wanted to talk to her, which was a lot of dudes. I'm sure there were some women there. I just remember like men with white hair and suits. That's what I in my kid brain. But when she actually retired and they dedicated that journal issue to her, a bunch of people wrote in letters. What was so heartwarming was so many of them said that she took the time to talk to me. And one person said, I went to a conference once and I asked her a question before she could answer. The organizers of the conference came in and swooped her away 
for the next event and she didn't have a chance to answer you know they just came in and whisked her away and he said dr martin then found me the next day and handed me a letter in which she had handwritten this long answer to the question i had asked her when i read that i was like my mom <laughs> like, that like who does that right most people would just leave and be like oh i didn't get an answer to this question whatever she remembered it she wrote out this full answer sought him out and gave him that like that is wow like say what you want about the amazing you know drug design she's done you know revolutionary fantastic work is absolutely the grandmother of that whole field however it's that personal connection that she taught me you do it because you're passionate about it and you treat people well along the way yeah, that, that's that's mom. <laughs> I think that's so amazing that she was able to make time for not only like answering questions, but like talking to you too and getting to know, like being actually having a relationship with you, especially in that field. Yes. And you're trying to not just be like dominated by a bunch of men. You're trying to make your mark. And she was able to do it all. So I think that's amazing. Well, she had a great partner in my dad, right? Like they shared, I remember they would share the weekend. Like my dad would take us on Saturday. So my mom could spend all day working on her book. And then she or it was like vice versa, like one parent would take us one weekend day and the other would take us the other. So they both had time for their their work projects. Aside from their full time job, they also had these passion projects, um, but then they each had time with us girls as well. So that's just so sweet. I love that that parent duo. They actually made a schedule for you guys and didn't just <laughs> brush you aside and say, go have fun. <laughs> no, they, they did not brush me aside. They were they were right there. They were very present. <laughs> So I kind of wanted to dig into like, you know, how Alverno has the eight abilities and one of them being like developing a global perspective. And mm -hmm. because you were able to do that with your mother, do you think that your global perspective was fulfilled before you were attending like the conferences in like Europe and whatnot, or did it just continue to grow? I think that was definitely the first, first awakening you know, of the world beyond my own nose. I mean, when you're a kid, you're like, you're so in your own head, right? It's the me show. At least it was for me when I was a kid, you know, you sort of don't look around and I didn't really realize the enormity of the world until you hop in a plane and fly around it. Oh, whoa. Um, so that was really the beginning of it. And then because I also attended Interlochen Arts Academy, which is an academy up in Northern Michigan, so I went there for their music program in the summer for eight weeks for two summers. And then I also went to my last two years of high school there. And this is a music school, excuse me, arts academy that draws people from all over the world. So I was in a cabin in the summers and a dorm during the school year with people, I mean, from all over the US, but all over the world, Japan, um, uh, the UK, everywhere is <laughs> so truly international. So that really helped me see like, wow, we may have a different culture, a different language, different style of dress. Really, people are the same. They want to be happy. They want to be feel safe. They want to feel loved. They want to do something that they like to do. They want other people to have respect towards them. It's like, oh, different, different, same, same. <laughs> it's different on the outside, but it's the same, same on the inside. So mm -hmm. certainly seeing how my mom utilized that in service in her career and the way that music embraces that sort of universal language of the arts um, definitely plays out in how I teach now. And now I'm a homebody, I hardly go anywhere, not just before the pandemic, but I love being rooted here because I've spent so much of my life traveling. It's really nice to have a period where I've been more able to build a base of power in one place and it's the same, same. So my last question is, what does Alverno Strong mean to you? 
say Alverno strong means to me enduring and continuing on um, so many things in life change and we have horrible situations like war that we have going on now that are heartbreaking and we have the seemingly unending challenge of COVID-19 and then we have our own personal things happening, breakups and marriages and highs and lows. All of those wheels of personal experience seem to keep changing and changing. One day you're up and the next day you're down and you get the acceptance and then you get the rejection and it's constantly in flux. But something like Alverno Strong is talking to that quality of process and present that is the thing that continues on. Um, and the great um, Zen monk, Thich Nhat Hanh, who just passed, someone asked him, like, how do I keep my peace when people are being mean to me, basically? And he said, you keep doing your practice, which in their tradition is a breathing practice, but for anybody, you keep doing, you keep being you, and you continue on with that, and you just continue on, and that becomes the thing that endures everything else will continue to flow through its flows, life and death and up and down. But if you're continuing on being who you are, then you're golden. And so that strength then is that strength to just stay engaged with the process. Well, that's great. And I, I completely agree. I feel like a lot of women too, like I've heard answers about Alverno Strong, meaning like, again, like enduring and just kind of persevering. So I feel like it's really great that we all kind of have that universal just understanding of what it means to be all Bruno strong. That is beautiful. I love it. Persevering, right? Because that's it. That's what we can do. What's the other choice? Well, it's always great talking to you. I love the energy that you give out. It makes me feel more comfortable and just like excited to talk to you. So oh, that's beautiful. The feeling is very mutual. It's lovely <laughs> to spend a little time with you. And perhaps someday there'll be a cup of coffee or tea in our future, like in person. Yes, hopefully. Um, that would be lovely. But thank you so much for reaching out. It's been lovely to connect. And with all the listeners out there, lovely to chat with y'all. Don't be shy. Reach out. You can find me. GeetaBrown.com. Always reach out. Always here to chat. Sounds good. Well, I'll let you get to the rest of your day attending your chickens and whatnot. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. <laughs> Have a good day. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of Alverno Voice. If you are ever impacted by the stories of these esteemed Alverno alumni, feel free to make a contribution to the Alverno community by heading over to alverno.edu slash give. Again, that's alverno.edu slash give. Thank <laughs> you.